This fall we've been reading and studying, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, uh, the story of Elijah as found in 1 Kings. Elijah, as we've been getting to know, is a prophet. He's someone that God has set aside uh, and uh, he has been ordained to be God's spokesperson. Elijah was called to bring God's word to God's people so, so that they would know who God was and what God was up to. And he was called to exercise this office at a time when God's people didn't really want to hear a word from the Lord. These were dark days in northern Israel, days of idolatry and apostasy. Under the leadership of Ahab and Jezebel, God's people had turned away from the Lord. Not only had they fully embraced uh, Baal, Baal in Baal worship, they were also, under Jezebel's leadership, actively seeking to eradicate any trace of the Lord's name from Samaria. While Elijah was in Zarephath, Jezebel was off slaughtering the Lord's prophets. But the prophet she most wanted to find and kill, she couldn't find. Little did she know that this prophet, Elijah, happened to be residing with a widow in a small town not far from her hometown in Sidon. Two weeks ago, we traveled uh, with Elijah from the Cherith Ravine to the little town of Zarephath. And in both places, we watched on as God sustained his servant, the bearer of his word, in these difficult times. We pick up the story in chapter 18, verse 1. And like I did two weeks ago, I'm going to break up the reading of the text and offer reflections along the way. Um, so please follow along in your Bibles, or the scripture will also be up on the screen. And I invite you to hear the word of the Lord for you this morning. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, says the Lord, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. The first thing that struck me about uh, these opening verses here in chapter 18 is, is the time frame. After a long time, in the third year, Three years is a lot of time to be uh, hanging out in a foreign city. I hope Elijah brought some good books to read, or maybe that he found, a, maybe he found a few good podcasts to listen to. What did Elijah do during those three years in Zarephath? We're not really sure. I'm sure he found productive things to do. Maybe he fixed up the widow's home. I'm sure he spent a lot of that time in prayer, uh, talking to God, seeing, you know, see, wondering if he was going to get a word. But still, three years is a long time to exist somewhere without a sense for what is next. Expectant waiting, this waiting in hope, it's a posture towards God, it's a spiritual discipline, and it's a hard-earned one. Over and over again in the Bible, this waiting on the Lord is encouraged. We read in Psalm 27, Wait on the Lord, be strong and take heart, and wait on the Lord. To wait on the Lord is to trust that God will act and that he will lead on his terms and in his time. The doers among us have a hard time with this waiting around business. We'd prefer to light up our own torches and blaze a path ahead. Waiting makes us feel anxious, maybe a little worthless. 
And we would think to ourselves, clearly God wouldn't want us to just sit here waiting. Let's go and do something. But expectant waiting is not just sitting around. To wait is to trust. It's to acknowledge that we aren't generals in the Lord's armies, but officers. God told Elijah to go to Zarephath. He hasn't told Elijah to leave. And so Elijah stays at his post for about three years. Jesus gave the disciples similar orders just before he ascended to heaven. Go to Jerusalem, he said to them, and wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And so the disciples went and they waited. They prayed and they waited. God is in control of his mission. He selects and empowers servants to complete his assignments. Pretty soon, Elijah will be on the front lines again, calling down fire from heaven. But prior to this, he spends three years waiting in relative isolation. I don't know if that's a comfort to you today or perhaps a challenge. Regardless, I think there might be a few simple applications that we can make here. Blessed is the one who learns to keep in step with God, to walk when God walks. And wise is the one who remembers that unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. If we have any worries that Elijah became spiritually lazy in Zarephath, the last verse clears that up for us. For as soon as the Lord's word came to him, he went and did just as God had asked of him. And he does so, even though God's word here is a little bit surprising. Go and present yourself to Ahab, the Lord says, and I will send rain on the land. What's surprising here is the fact that God is ready to move towards his people and to bless them with rain, these covenant blessings, even though they have not moved an inch towards him. As far as we can tell, the drought has not softened the people of northern Israel at all. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, Ahab's heart is harder than ever. And yet the Lord chooses to move towards him. This is a surprise in that it breaks with God's typical pattern in dealing with his Old Testament covenant people. In general, the blessings return to Israel only after the people of Israel repent and confess their sin and humble themselves before the Lord. We see this pattern played out, played out again and again in the book of Judges, for instance. And, and here's how it looks. Here's the pattern. The people forsake the Lord. They get lazy. They turn away. They go pursue other idols. The Lord allows the surrounding nation to come in and cause trouble. Uh, then the people come to their senses and they get on their knees and they pray and they confess their sins. And then the Lord comes and he raises up a judge and then the land is blessed again. God's typical way of dealing with people is nicely laid out in this famous verse from 2 Chronicles. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. The blessings usually flow down as the prayers of confession go up. This is how God often works. But here in 1 Kings, God turns towards his covenant people, even though they have not turned towards him. 
And I think this is interesting. You know, modern readers of, of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, come to the conclusion that, that this God of the Old Testament, he's awfully harsh and impulsive. But I don't know if that's a very nuanced reading of the story. In fact, in the book of Kings, I mean, God is harsh at times, very harsh. He sends this harsh drought. That's a fierce uh, uh, punishment. But he's also patient in 1 Kings to the point of being indulgent. In this instance, he takes this first step towards reconciliation, even though the other party wants nothing to do with him. As of yet, God himself is coming to his people. God himself will win his people back. He will show his power and take the lead in changing their hearts. This is the beginning of a gospel movement in the book of Kings. It's an instance where the Lord chooses to work for the good of his people, not because they deserve it, but because of his good pleasure and his grace alone. This is the God of both testaments, the one most fully revealed in Jesus Christ, who, while we were yet sinners, died for us. More on this next week. But first, let's return to Samaria to see how Ahab's house has been handling the drought. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. A few important details come to to light in these verses. The first is that this drought has been a, a real killer in northern Israel. The cisterns have run dry, the silos are empty, and now even the king has to make tough choices. Either he finds green pasture or it's time to start killing off his horses and mules. Given the severity of the drought, going out in search of green pasture seems like a practical step for Ahab to take. But I think it also reveals a deep self-centeredness in him. Remember that Ahab is not in the dark when it comes to the meaning of this drought. The Lord's word came to him through Elijah. He knows that this drought is a punishment from God and not just a fluke of nature. So what should he be doing instead of wandering around looking for grass? Well, as king, as shepherd of the people under his care, he should be leading the congregation in a prayer of confession He should be dressing himself in sackcloth and ashes and humbling himself and crying out for mercy. He's in the know. He knows what's happening here. But he refuses to get on his knees and humble himself before the Lord. This is a sign that Ahab's going to stick to his rebellious ways to the bitter end. A key piece to see here, too, is that the animals Ahab is trying to save are not cows and chickens or sheep. Ahab, rather, is seeking to save his horses and mules. Why? Because these are the primary weapons 
and his army. These are his war horses. This too is a little window into Ahab's soul. Recall that in chapter 16, a a few weeks ago, Ahab decided to rebuild the walls of Jericho. He did this even though Joshua, long ago, commanded his people that these walls were never to be rebuilt. They weren't to be rebuilt because they were to be an ongoing testimony to God's power. For the nations around, they were to say, don't mess with the God of Israel. He can topple these walls. And for the people within Israel, every time they walked by the ruined walls of Jericho, they were to remember that they weren't supposed to put their trust in walls, but in the living God, right? That's what we learned a few weeks ago. But Ahab decided that he liked the security that walls provided his kingdom. And so in defiance to God's word, he rebuilt the walls. And now he's doing something similar here, but instead of putting his trust in walls, He's putting in his trust in chariots and horses. He wants to sustain his military in case there's an attack from outside. He wants to have horses and chariots. And so he seeks the survival of his horses and mules. So it's safe to say that the drought has not turned Ahab back to God, not in the least. Clearly the Lord needs to, be, needs to intervene if there's going to be an end to this drought. But there is a bright spot in Ahab's administration. Mixed into the mess is an interesting new character named Obadiah. Obadiah. I like this guy. He, like Elijah, is a flash of God light in this dark story. His name means servant of the Lord. And that is who he's trying to be. He's trying to serve God. But unlike Elijah, who is called to confront Israel with the word... Obadiah is given a different task in God's mission. His job is to infiltrate from the inside, to serve the Lord while also trying to be faithful to his earthly master. We can only imagine the difficult situations that Obadiah found himself in, probably on a daily basis. How do you remain a faithful servant to the Lord while remaining a faithful employee of a morally bankrupt king. Should he quit in order to consecrate consecrate himself to the Lord? Or should he keep his position of influence and try to work for good in that place? Obadiah is not the first biblical character to walk this high-stakes balancing act. I think of Joseph in Egypt. Or I think of Esther as queen of Persia. Or Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon. Elijah's calling was a difficult one. The call to be a prophet is a difficult, difficult calling. He spent a lot of time alone. But at least it was a black and white calling. Proclaim the word of the Lord and let the chips fall where they may. But Obadiah, he's swimming in a world of gray. Most of you, I imagine, can relate a bit more to Obadiah's calling than you can relate to Elijah's calling. How do you be a faithful doctor or nurse in a medical system that allows and promotes medical assistance in dying as an option? How do you be a faithful employee of a company that you know is not always above board in its dealings? 
How do you live out your faith as a teacher in the public school system or as a politician in a party that won't allow you to bring up the issues that you know matter to God? At what point is your integrity of a Christian, as a Christian compromised by your participation in an unjust system or institution? You guys ever think about these complicated questions? I, I hope you do. I hope you're wondering, how do I serve God in the place that he has me with the people that are over me? How do I navigate this? This is what Obadiah is trying to do. And these real-life questions, they require such a great deal of wisdom and also an ability to know the difference between what is essential and what is not. In Babylon, Daniel let the king change his name, and he wore the clothes that the king gave him to wear. The king was trying to change Daniel into being a good Babylonian citizen. But Daniel, though he wore the clothes and allowed his name to be changed, he would not bow a knee to the king's statue. Not a chance. So there was the line that Daniel drew. We don't know a lot about how Obadiah handled himself as Ahab's chief of staff, but we do know that he decided to risk his job and life in order to protect 100 of the Lord's prophets. He, he decided that he couldn't sit back and watch that happen. And so he went to work to protect those prophets. Additionally, Obadiah, the insider, was also the means that God used to deliver a message to Ahab. Pick up the story at verse 7. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground, and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go and tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong? asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Part of the reason I like Obadiah is because he's kind of a believable character, hey? There's a lot of fear. He is scared. So on the one hand, he shows a lot of courage by hiding the prophets of the Lord. But in other areas, like, this guy's scared, right? He's, he's like you and I, trying to figure out how to serve the Lord in this complex situation. He knows the power of Ahab. He knows what the earthly authority above him can do to him. So he's bringing that up. To Elijah, what, what am I supposed to do? I can't believe you're giving me this task. Obadiah serves the Lord, but he also has firsthand experience of Ahab's wrath. And he knows that saying Elijah's name in front of Ahab is akin to kicking a hornet's nest. 
I mean, Ahab's been looking high and low for Elijah, high and low. And, uh, and he's not going to like that Elijah just appears. And besides, says, says Obadiah, uh, what will happen to me if I tell Ahab, if I tell him Elijah's back, but then the Lord whisks you away before we return? I mean, this has been happening all throughout the story that God takes Elijah away whenever there's danger, that he's in danger. So Obadiah is thinking, yeah, right, you give me this task, I'm going to go talk to my boss, and then we're going to come back, and you're not going to be here, and I'm going to be left holding the hornet's nest. So he's, he's worried. And he also protests, like, why me? I mean, I'm, I'm working so hard to just stay faithful. I'm helping out the prophets, for heaven's sake. Doesn't the Lord see what I'm doing? And now this suicide mission. Sensing Obadiah's need for encouragement, Elijah speaks these words of assurance. Elijah said, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. Elijah's uh, communicating two things in this short statement. Both are designed to alleviate Obadiah's anxiety. Firstly, Elijah reassures, reassures Obadiah that God's not going to pull off another disappearing Elijah trick. This time, it's God's will that the encounter takes place. And the second anxiety alleviating thing that Elijah says is simply the Lord's name. But he adds a special modifier to that name, the Lord Almighty. The word translated almighty in the Hebrew is Sabaoth. A Sabaoth is, is a host. It's, it's an army of people or angelic beings. In, order, in older translations of the Bible, Yahweh Sabaoth would be translated the Lord of hosts. Perhaps you've heard that before. For us Reformed Christians, the word Sabaoth is probably most famously found in the second verse of Martin Luther's classic hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. None of us really knows what we're singing at that point in the song, but the hymn is so rousing that we sing it with gusto anyway, right? Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth his name. This name appears semi-frequently in the scriptures, and it's, it's a name that speaks of God's power over all. It identifies him as the general who commands the hosts of heaven and controls all the powers on earth. The angels do the Lord's bidding. The ravens bring his servant food. The jars of flour and oil stay full at his command. The dead are brought back to life as, as he wills it. Lord Sabaoth, his name. Elijah wants Obadiah to see what he sees of the Lord. He wants him to know that Lord Sabaoth is at work in, this, in the midst of this engagement with Ahab. And he is. I mean, as we look through this story, who, who is in control so far? Who is the real general calling the shots in this story? Ahab enlists his hosts to go out and search for Elijah, but they come back empty-handed. They can't find him anywhere. 
Jezebel brings in Baal to bring the rain and flood Israel with wealth. But the moment Baal's temple is finished, God sends a drought on the land. The kings conspire, but the one enthroned in heaven laughs. And he will get the last laugh in this story too. By using this name for God, Elijah is reassuring Obadiah that he is in good hands. The true general of heaven and earth lives, and he is at work. And so, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. I don't know where you are, what thorny situations you find yourself in today. Maybe today you're caught in the crossfire trying to find the path of integrity in a difficult situation, and you don't know how your earthly boss is going to respond. Or maybe you're waiting on the Lord like Elijah and Zarephath, waiting and waiting, not sure what to do or where to go next, not sure if you've heard God correctly or if you're in the right place, not sure what's going on and you're not getting anything from God. Life in this world is is not easy and life as God's servant in this world is certainly not a trip down easy street. Occasionally God's going to call you out and call you out to, to, to... live into this prophetic role of speaking truth to power. He might call you out like he did the widow in Zarephath to give your last meal to a stranger. Or maybe he'll call you out to, like, like he did with Obadiah and use you uh, to protect his prophets and risk your life in the process. Courage and shrewdness is required to live life in obedience to God in this world. But don't forget Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he will win the battle. It may not always look or feel like Christ is on the throne at the right hand of God. It certainly didn't feel that way to the disciples as they watched their master get tried by the Jews and crucified by the Romans. How could the Lord sit back and watch the brutal death of the servant that he loved so much? And yet, three days later, Jesus emerged, victorious o'er the grave. And it turns out that all of it had gone exactly to God's plan so that you and I could be reconciled to God while we were yet sinners. The early church was persecuted for proclaiming this message. The Jews wanted to snuff this movement out. The Romans saw Jesus as a threat to the peace of their empire, so they fed Christians to the lions and scattered them all over so they couldn't bunch together. But through this persecution, the general of heaven and earth spread the seed of the gospel all around the Roman Empire. He will win the battle. Why do the nations of earth, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? We read in Psalm 2. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and he will win the battle. Brothers and sisters and friends, don't forget that this Lord lives, 
and that he is working in the world over all the powers and through us, whether we're on the front lines or in behind the scenes, wherever we are, he's working through us to make his kingdom come and his will be done. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen.